This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to uh, a fantastic Friday night at the festival. We're heading to our final weekend. My name is Roland Gulliver. I'm the Associate Director for the festival, and I'm delighted to be here and chairing this event with Kevin Barry. Uh, I will give Kevin a very quick introduction. He's going to do a very beautiful reading. We'll have some questions. Uh, we'll enjoy the sirens for the... <laughs> the kind of atmosphere of Clue Bay, uh, and then we'll have a chat, and then we'll open questions up for you guys. Uh, there's a roving mic, so my colleagues will come round and answer the question, uh, give that to you so you can ask your questions and talk more with Kevin. Kevin Barry is the author of four books, uh, There Are the Little Kingdoms, which won the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature in 2007, Dark Lies the Island, is a collection of short stories, City of Bohan, which won the International Impact Dublin Literary Award in 2013, and obviously Beetlebone, which we'll be talking about tonight, which has already won the 2015 Goldsmiths Prize. So please welcome Kevin Barry. Hello, hi. Um, I'm going to read from just a few different little sections of the novel Beetlebone. Um, a man called John from Liverpool is about to spend 200 odd pages trying to find his little island off the coast of County Mayo in the west of Ireland. Um, and we'll start at the very start. He's just arrived. He sets out for the place as an animal might, as though on some fated migration. There is nothing rational about it, nor even entirely sane. And this is the great attraction. He's been traveling half the night east and nobody has seen him. If you keep your eyes down, they can't see you. Across the strung-out skies and through the eerie airports, and now he sits in the back of the old Mercedes. His brain feels like a city centre, and there is a strange tingling in the bones of his monkey feet. Fuck it. He will deal with it. The road unfurls as a black tongue and laps at the night. There's something monkeyish, isn't there, about his feet. Also, his gums are bleeding, but he won't worry about that now. He'll worry about it in a bit. Save one for later. Trees and fields pass by in the grainy night. Monkeys on the fucking brain lately, as a matter of fact. Anxiety. He hears a blue yonderly note from somewhere. Perhaps it's from within. Now the driver's somber eyes show up in the rear view. It's arranged, he says. There should be no bother whatsoever, but we could be talking an hour yet to the hotel out there. Driver is a very smooth tomber, deep and trustworthy, like a newscaster, the bass note and brown velvet of his voice, and the great chunky old Merc cuts the air, quiet as money as they move. John is tired, but not for sleeping. No fucking pressmen, he says, and no fucking photogs. In the near dark, there is the sense of trees and fields and hills combining. The way you can feel a world form around you on a lucky night in the springtime. He rolls the window an inch. He takes a lungful of cool starlight for a straightener. Blue and gases. That's lovely. He's tired as fuck, but he cannot get his head down. It's the May time. The air is thick with and tastes of it, and he is all stirred up again. Where the fuck are we, driver? It would be very hard to say. <laughs> Quite likes this driver. 
He stretches out his monkey toes. It's the middle of the night and fucking nowhere. He sighs heavily. This starts out well enough, but it turns quickly to a dull moaning. Not a handsome development. Driver is up the rear view again, as though to say, gather yourself. For a moment, they watch each other gravely. The night moves. The driver has a high purple colour, madness or eczema, and his nose looks dead, and he speaks now in a scolding hush, that's going to get you nowhere. Driver tips the wheel, a soft glance, the road is turned. They are moving fast and west. Mountains climb the night sky. The cold stars travel. They are getting higher. The air changes all the while. By a scatter of woods there is a medieval scent. By a deserted house on a sudden turn there is an occult air. How to explain these fucking things? They come at last by the black gleaming sea, and this place is so haunted, or at least it is for me, and there is a sadness too, close in, like a damp or second skin. Out here the trees have been twisted and shaped by the wind into strange new guises. He can see witches, ghouls, creatures of nightwood, pouting banshees, cackling hoods. It's a night for the fucking bats, he says. I beg your pardon? What I mean to say, driver, is I'm going off my fucking bean back here. I'm sorry? That's all you can be. He lies back in his seat, pale and wakeful, chalk-white comedian, his sore bones and age. No peace, no sleep, no meaning. And the sea is out there and moving. He hears it drag on its cables, a slow, rusted swooning which is poetical to a man in the dark hours in his denim and lonely it moves him the driver turns smiling sadly you have the look of a poor fellow who's caught up in himself oh really what's it's on your mind not easy to say driver love blood fate death sex the void mother father cunt and prick these are the things on his mind also how many more times are they going to ask me, come on the fucking Muppet Show? <laughs> I just want to get to my island, he says. He will spend three days alone on his island. That is all that he asks, that he might scream his lungs out and scream the days into nights and scream to the stars by night, if stars there are and the stars come through. Now, th this driver, his name is Cornelius O'Grady, and he becomes a significant character in the novel. He becomes John's, not only his driver and his minder, but his kind of spiritual guide to the occult reverberations of the west of Ireland. The press become alerted that John is on the ground in County Mayo trying to get to his island, John Lennon, if, if it isn't already apparent. <laughs> um, so they have to hide out for a while in Cornelius' farmhouse in the hills. And it's 78, 1978, so John is at this point a strict vegan. But there's nothing to eat in Cornelius' house except a lot of black pudding. So they eat the black pudding. And it makes John very emotional for his childhood in Liverpool. He eats the food, the spiciness, the mealiness, the animal waft. It's all there in the history of his mouth. And he's near to fucking tears again. The tea is strong and sweet and tastes of Liverpool. Would you believe, John, that my father lived in this house until he was 87 years of age? How do you get to be 87 up a wet hill in County Mayo, Cornelius? He neither drank nor smoked, John. Actually, I'm packing away all that myself. I drink, John, I smoke, and I top women. Oh, really? Whenever I get the chance, John. 
Cornelius slowly teases out the knuckles of one hand and then the other. But you see, what my father had was great intelligence always. That would help. Oh, he was a wily man, John. He was fucking what? He was wily. What the fuck is wily? He was full of wiles, John. <laughs> he was full of fucking what? He had a wiliness, John. Oh, okay, hang on. As in he was canny. Exactly so. Okay, so now I have it. But tell me this, won't you? How can you have a windy fucking moor that's wily? Huh? How can you have a wily fucking moor? A wily? He sings it for him in a witchy screech. Out on a wily, windy <laughs> moor. What are you saying to me, John? The Kate Bloody Bush song, Cornelius. Kate Bush? Cornelius shakes his head sadly. I knew a Martin Bush, he says. <laughs> oh, really? Belmullet direction put long dead and God rest him, poor Martin. Any relation, Cornelius, to who, John? To Kate Bloody Bush. I don't know a Kate. Could she have been a sister? She might well have been. No, I knew a Martin. And was he wily? If there was one thing he wasn't, it was wily, John. Oh, really? Poor Martin was an inordinately stupid man. He could barely tie his shoelaces. Haypenny short, then. Listen, poor Martin had animals that had more wile in them. What kind of animals did he have, Cornelius? He had sheep, a few cattle, I suppose, though they would have been wind-bothered up in that direction. They'd have been bothered, John, by wind coming in the way it would unseat cattle. Unseat them? Cornelius lowers his sad eyes in the mind, John. You mean you could have a cow would take a turn? Cornelius squares his jaw. Do you realise, John, you're looking at a man who's seen a cow step in front of a moving vehicle purposefully? On account of wind coming easterly, John. It's the kind of thing that can leave a beast beyond despair because of the pure evil sound of it, John. The way it would play across the country in an ominous way. An easterly wind, if it was to come across you for a fortnight and it might, sleep gone out the window and a horrible black feeling racing through your fucking blood. Day and night, all sorts of thoughts of death and hopelessness. This is what you'd get at the tail end of an easterly wind. Man nor animal wouldn't be right after it. John pushes back his plate and sups the last of his tea and idly twirls the rind of the black pudding about the dull silver of the tines of his fork. Cornelius? Yes, John. Am I alive and not dreaming? He does eventually get to his island after about 220 pages. <laughs> Nothing much seems to happen when he gets there. But he is inspired to make a new record. And it's going to be his most experimental and most avant-garde record to date. It's going to be titled Beetlebone. Um, so he goes to a studio in London with his trusted sound engineer, Charlie Hames, who will be referred to here. And it's all going extremely well, except John can't think of any words for his new album, Beetlebone. Eventually he says, I'm just going to ask you to set a new tape here, um, Charlie, and I'm just going to rant a bit, and I'm going to try to explain what happened to me on my island. So just set a new tape and record. And whatever you do, Charlie, do not lose this tape. So finally, I'm just going to read a little bit of the section of the book that's titled The Great Lost Beetlebone Tape. And if I have nothing left to say, well, okay, because when I have nothing left to say, there was an enormous fucking egg on the rocks, Charlie. Is it rolling, Charlie? I can see it very clearly, in fact. It was brownish, actually, with yellow speckles on. Do I sound like I'm going to fucking well sing, Charlie? I'm on my island at last. 
an enormous fucking egg the size of my head and bigger again an egg that big a baby baboon might step out pink arsed in the smeared light and blue void I will keep my distance from that fucking egg it seems to move just a bit Something's got to crack and something's got to give. I'm not having in with that fucking egg. Say a newborn John steps out and spits all the mucusy bits away, pale and moon-faced. A skinny new John with a heron's legs and a reedy chest. A hairless, reedy, art college chest. Poetical, tubercular. It grows worse by the hour, my love. I'll give it some Richard fucking Burton, shall I, Charlie? Boskier. What's fucking bosky mean when it's at home? My words are fucked and all over, Charlie. In the city, my head feels big as a melon. On the island, my head feels tiny as a pea. I could belly across the rocks and tip my ear up against that giant egg. News therein, I dare say. Shells and walls and caves and holes and rooms and hollows. Here's a fucking word. Encasement. Not one to linger on, doctor. Close my eyes. I could walk the rocks for a while, it could kill a fucking hour like a tall dark bird as the last of the daylight goes. On an ink black stick bone, night dark currents walk. Oh, let's get Richard fucking Burton in all together, shall we? I know that a hill's lovelier than ours, and farther groves more full of flowers. They say the Welsh are thieves, don't they, Charlie? At least in Liverpool they do. We'll count the silver once Richard Burton's fucked off again. All this chatter that goes on, Charlie, I mean really. As I still can, I will. Boskier, I'm on my fucking island at last. Close my fucking eyes. Walk a slow curve around that fucking egg. The giant egg shimmers and rocks a bit. Soft throbs are thuds of life therein. The past is about. Black skin of the water moves. I'm as well to walk on, flower-brained and heron-eyed. Just leave me fucking be, just leave me fucking be on my own fucking island at last. At the bottom of the sea there are a million tiny rooms, but no doors, no locks, no keys. It's the past gets locked in. The sea is moving its inks about. Close my eyes as I walk. I've gone inside the past again. Slip inside the old house then. Uncle's coming up the stairs. Uncle travels on a broken lung. Wheezes like a busted accordion. Uncle Maudlin's travelling lung. The way his lips make the words and the news they bring. She's gone, John. Motherless waif left on the docks or some violin fucking thing. She's gone. Put a hole in my arm and let all the money in. Rabbit fast snare drum here, Charlie, and build it up a little. The stars hang down like blue fruit. Yes, thank you, Charlie. It is fucking lovely. The past is about. Ye crack. That's my boozer. It smells of dirty girls and beer. I am made of bile and nerves and broken glass. I've got such a screechy, such a girly laugh. I'm in the war room at ye crack. Keep it fucking down, John. Midnight by church bells. Fucking some girly in a doorway someplace on the back arse of Bowl Street. Knee trembler. The city is held in the palm of its own lights. Oh, to be on an island by night. A bird's home in like rueful thoughts. Thank you, Charlie. It is very nice. Don't give me the Nazi fucking eyes, pal. This great leery seabird on patrol. I'm the intruder on the stones and grass. There is no salve and there is no fix. She is on the dark side of every passing moment. She is my disease. She is a shadow just beneath my skin. My Julia. The island seems to move or give in the night's black wind. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>
I feel better now. A, l- a, l- a lot of this stuff I write, you know, it's a case of better out than in. <laughs> and you just kind of get it all out there. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you s- when, he s- when he kind of introduced the character of John, mm. he deliberately said it's a man called John. Uh, we obviously know it's about John Lennon, but how did you kind of get into the, the grips of both finding the character of John Lennon, but also moving beyond the character of John Lennon? Yeah, it was... It was um, I began the book, actually, in this kind of glow of great glee. I thought, what a fantastic idea <laughs> to plonk John Lennon unasked down in the middle of a batty little story out in the west of Ireland. Um, and then I noticed in my shed where I work at the back of the house in County Sligo, a few weeks into this project, a kind of a mounting air of hysteria, <laughs> you know? I was going, fuck, this is really hard, actually. Um, because it's not just any old iconic figure. It's an incredibly iconic figure. So it gives you, as a writer, it gives you a huge problem at the start of a novel in that so many readers are going to begin the book with an idea how this character should sound and how they want him to sound. Mm. And he's a great hero to so many of us. So it was, um, you know, it, it was kind of, it was a very slow process. I was convinced I was going to write this book in six months and it took four years in the end. And I... I, I I have a very uneconomical writing practice. I just write loads and then cut it down. And I was, I finished the book just over a year ago and I was cleaning out the shed after the four years hard labour, hosing the blood off the walls. <laughs> and um, I did a rough count, you know, and it's a short novel, it's about 50,000 words. And I estimated there was probably about 400,000 words written for it. Just reams of guff and nonsense, you know, that I just had to keep honing to try to bring his voice out. Um, because in, com- in comparison to City, City of Bohan, right. which is kind of dense and full of language and full of descriptions, sure. this is kind of really reduced and cut down. Yeah, it, it's, it's, much, it's, it's really, they're very different books in some ways. I think City of Bohan is a very much a kind of a, an extrovert mm. novel, and this is an introvert novel. It's all about feelings, you know, <laughs> and, and not being able to s- escape your family past and all that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's what I had at the start, which kept me going, I guess, was I had the feeling that I wanted for the book. Um, I, I go out on my bicycle in what, what passes for an Irish summer and I cycle around Clue Bay, usually around May or June in the year. And, um, and it's a very beautiful place. I'm sure there are lots of you here who know it, but it's also got a kind of a eerie, haunted, weird kind of a feeling about it. And it was just, I wanted that feeling for the book. And one of these strange little facts I had about Clue Bay was there are hundreds of little islands in it and I, I, I knew somehow that John Lennon used to own one of them. And it just got stuck in my brain like a trapped blue bottle or wasp. Just annoyed me. And I, 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 I tried to get rid of it in so many ways. I wrote a little radio essay about John actually buying this island in the late 60s for 1,500 quid. And I thought, that'll take care of it, you know? And it didn't. And then I found myself referring to it in a short story in my last collection, Dark Lies the Island. The island of the title is John's Island. It's just glanced at in the story. And I thought, that'll take care of that. <laughs> and then came a day in, in, in the shed where I found myself writing lines of dialogue for a character called John, and I thought, oh, fucking I'm trouble here. <laughs> I'm going to try it as a novel, you know? And it was, um, yeah, I, I, I watched a lot of YouTube. Um, so did you have to go through that whole, did you have to go through that kind of process of learning, it, learning John Lennon and then yeah, unlearning You know what, so it's, it's kind of, I, I, I was terrified to do any kind of traditional research because there's just so much stuff yeah. about Lennon and the Beatles. If you open that cupboard, the whole <laughs> world kind of falls out on you, you know. Um, I watched a lot of his 70s kind of US chat show interviews 
Dick Cavett show and things like this. And he's actually uniquely difficult to get his voice right because he's very capricious in his tone. It changes all the time in the course of a sentence. He'll be very funny and light and charming and inside a beat he's kind of dark and paranoid and thorny and getting that on the page is very hard. Um, oddly enough, it was when I made him part of a double act again, when I gave him <laughs> Cornelius. Yeah. It, it kind of, the book stood up on the table and started kind of working for me, I think, because I could hear him in relief against this other character, this crazy fucking <laughs> band driver around the west of Ireland. So it was, um, once he was back in a double act, it was, it was okay. So in relation to that, was it important to have the section later in the book where you appear as the author, yeah. kind of doing the research? and yeah. was, was that something that you needed to have in there so that... Yeah, yeah there's essentially a, a long essay plonked down in the middle <laughs> of, the, of the story about me writing the story and how I came to it. Um, and it was, um, I don't know, I guess I was about a year in and I had Cornelius and John rattling around the west of Ireland quite happily in their van. And I was starting to think, oh, I, could, I could get away with this. This is kind of good fun. It's a kind of deranged little body movie of some sort. But then I thought, I want to elevate it from this somehow. And I just started to ask myself, why am I writing this book? And, and quite by accident, I, uh, I had notes gathered in lots of different places and in different notebooks and on, in my phone and on the backs of beer mats very often. Um, and I said one day I'm going to buy a very lovely fancy new moleskin notebook and transcribe all my notes into one place. And I, as I did so, writing down the bare true facts of the story, I found these very effortless paragraphs forming. And I, nothing in the process up until this point had been effortless, so I paid attention, you know. Um, and that essay section in the middle, which talks about the actual story of John buying this little island as a place to go and scream in the west of Ireland, which is quite true. Um, and then about me out there trying to find my way around there, trying to get to his island, going out there, the whole background of the time. Um, talking about how you make a portrait of an artist, to use the Joycean phrase, um, how you go into that, how you have to go into your own dark places. And I found all this material coming through that was completely unexpected for me. And I felt, oh, well, this is very clearly the emotional heart of the book, and I have to plonk it right in the mm. middle. Um, and it's, it's, it is an ask, as they say, for the reader, you know, because I'm yanking them out of this story they've just about kept <laughs> going with and are just about believing in John Lennon in a van, you know, talking to a seal in the west of Ireland, but then you're taking them away and asking them to go back in. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I've got away with it to some extent. Um, but no, it was very important to me to, to, to locate that essay in, in, in the middle of the book, mm. because I think the, the rest of the story radiates out in both directions from it, yeah. back and forward. Yeah, because I guess uh, I was quite interested in the in the, the the that relationship between, I guess John Lennon at his point, because he, he's at a point where he's got writer's block and he's mm. trying to find his next album. He's trying to find yeah. his, he's, and he's achieved a level, you know, obviously a phenomenal level of success. And that whole you said about a, por a portrait of an artist, mm. and that that relationship between you as the writer to John Lennon mm. and uh, or the John Lennon, the artist, trying to essentially just find something. Yeah. How do you find And that... Yeah, it, it, it was like, he was, like the, the, the novel kind of stays with the actuality for, for a while here and there and then it will go away from it. So we do know actually in his life in the late 70s he was quite blocked. Um, he wasn't recording. He wasn't writing songs. Um, and he kind of felt the problem was that he was too happy. 
Um, he had sorted out all his long-standing visa problems in the US. The marriage was back together. There was a new baby. He was baking lots of bread at home. He was a house daddy, and he had no fucking songs. You know, <laughs> very typically for artists when things are going well. You know, oh, nothing is happening on the page. So I, I imagined him then going out to his island in the west of Ireland, and and actually late on in his life, very near the end, actually he he did talk in some interview or something about his little island and he said he was going to um, renew the planning permission to build a house with Mayo County Council out there and just this fact actually of John Lennon and Mayo County Council <laughs> having dealings with each other was another thing that wouldn't let me alone you know and I, I, I knew I had to try and make a book out of it and it's like, yeah, in a sense it's quite it's quite a dark novel but that whole comedy was that kind of what also inspired that, yeah. like just that uh, the slight bonkersness the fact of John Lennon in this small yeah, Irish town. And it's, it's, I guess, with everything I write, whether it's a novel or a play script or a short story, um, my favourite description, I think, from what I'm trying to do is from Mr Nabokov, his, his phrase, laughter in the dark. You know, very often the material is quite dark and goes into quite tricky, troublesome areas, but I want the reader to kind of chuckle all the way through and then at the end go, what in Jesus' name are we laughing at? Um, so, yeah, it was... It was um, what I was trying to do actually was, was get a kind of a sense of, I knew it was going into very kind of tricky emotional places, the book, but I, was tr I wanted to have a sense of lightness on the page and, and, and the character Cornelius again was kind of a gift mm. in, in, in that sense, you know, he really kept it. Like lots of, the, the real motors of the book are these long conversations between John and Cornelius about absolutely nothing, you know, <laughs> about Kate Bush songs and black pudding and all this kind of nonsense. But they, when I was writing those, I was just very happy you know, because I, I could hear the two of them and, and, and almost start to believe in them. Well, you say it's about those conversations about nothing, but in in with all hidden within that are all the other themes of the book. You know, the you know his fear and his fear of happiness and the mm. fear that he's just gonna it's gonna rot his brain. Yeah, it's yeah, and I think it's something that all writers and artists and musicians and creative people have. It's like we don't paint pictures or write poems or write novels because things are going well and we're all <laughs> wonderfully happy. We do them because we're fucked, you know? <laughs> and that's the only way you can make sense of all the <laughs> white noise and stuff that's going on up there. Um, and he, yeah, he, he, he was so interesting to try and do in that sense because he was such an intense person, you know, in lots of different ways and funny, kind of humorous ways and also in very dark ways, you know? So he was, um, I must say I was never happier to finish a project and get it out of the house because actually on a weird I couldn't enjoy the music for four years while I was doing it and I do love John Lennon and the Beatles I should say <laughs> at this point but um, I couldn't listen to it in an unselfconscious way for four years every time I would hear something I'd put on the white album and go oh am I getting it anywhere close to, to being able to justify it <laughs> you know am I getting anything like the voice down so actually it's been really wonderful the last year to be able to listen to the White Album again in an unselfconscious way and go, oh, that's fine. I can just enjoy it, you know? <laughs> but in, ter in terms of that, uh, for you as a writer and that sense of what you're creating and the w one of the things of Cornelius, kind of the, the, one of his big things is the fact that we only see 10% of what is happening. Yeah. <laughs> right. and we have to listen. Yeah. And for you as a writer, that, that kind of... Oh, completely so, Pushing yeah. the, the idea of a, a work of art pushing you yeah, to, be, to kind of beyond the limits, yeah. the, the, beyond the, the limits of... The, the, there was a great um, philosopher who died a few years ago in County Kerry, John Moriarty. I'm sure some of you have read him. Um, 
and he is always saying a wonderfully mellifluous Kerry accent. There are happy fields and there are sad fields. He had a theory that you could walk across any field in the west of Ireland and sometimes you get a lovely, happy, light feeling and other times you get a dark, Jesus, I'm depressed kind of a feeling. And he would say the happiness or the sadness isn't yours at all. It could be waiting in that field for 800 years or 2,700 years over something that happened. And I actually do kind of believe in this to some extent mm. in, my, in my work, I think. Um, human feeling doesn't just exist in humans. It settles into our places, into our street corners and into our fields and into our hills. Every place has its own reverberation. And I think as, as a writer, what I'm doing often is I'm going around a place on my bicycle tuning into the reverberations of what's going on. I'm hoping this is sounding as esoteric <laughs> as it is, <laughs> as, a, as a process. But yeah, I, 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 I do get this. And, I, and, and it's a really great thing for a writer to get out of the house, actually, and to go out. And bikes are great. Bikes are a really nice pace to go around. You know, walking is too slow and boring. A car, you see nothing. But on your bicycle, you're just going at a nice, spacey kind of pace through these happy and sad fields in County Mayo. And you're tuning into it all. Um, and it's actually always a place is the initial inspiration for a story or a novel or a play or anything mm. with me. It's always something in the atmosphere of a place makes me want to create something in response to it. And this, weirdly, this Beetlebone didn't really start with John Lennon. It started with Clue Bay mm. and the kind of melancholy, kind of the the sweet melancholy kind of feeling I would get out oh, there. Yeah in the horrendous Irish summer weather. <laughs> and the death hauntedness. <laughs> yeah, death hauntedness yeah. and all that kind of eeriness. And it is a place that's had very dark histories, you know, and all of that stuff is there. Cornelius is very tuned into this as a character. He's kind <laughs> of a, he's kind of a, a, a kind of a, a salute to Mr. Moriarty. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, it's, 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 there's, an, there's, there's, there's an interest because obviously there's that whole feeling of hauntedness and ghosts mm. and in some of the short stories in, in Dark Lies and Island the, the, the characters are haunted but there's a point where they're kind of digging into John Lennon and he goes oh you know I'm essentially fucked up because my, my dad died or my mum died right. and yeah. they go well everyone's parents get over it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all, we're, we're all actually the other place of course that, that gave me this book was, was this, the, the wonderful city of, of Liverpool the great Irish city of Liverpool um, because I did live there for, for three years and I don't think actually I would have had the confidence to, to try this book mm. if I hadn't been going on, around on buses that said Strawberry Fields and Penny <laughs> Lane on them for, for a few years, you know. And actually for an Irish writer, Liverpool is very close, you mm. know. Um, your ear can tune in. We're very cousinly with the city, obviously. Du the north side of Dublin and the city of Liverpool, their accents can sometimes almost seek together into one. So... You know, it, it's, it's quite easy for an Irish writer to, to, to get that Liverpool dialogue down. I, li I lived in Edinburgh for longer than I lived in Liverpool and never have said a word of fiction here. It's weird. <laughs> Your dense, impenetrable patois that you speak <laughs> in there. It's just impossible. Um, but, it, but it's strange, you know, it's, it's some places, and it's not a case of liking a place or disliking a place, but some places really stir you up creatively mm. and other places just, you know, don't and it's it's, it's you kind of talk about that from Dublin to Liverpool to Glasgow that kind of yeah that arc of well, the, the, I, I, prosperity just talking about sort of weirdness and, and cities um, I have always felt that there's this triangular thing going on between Liverpool Belfast and Glasgow they always remind me of each other and their kind of energies and feelings and and, and, and strangenesses mm. you know and these old Victorian cities and I'm very fond of all, all three of them um, but yeah pl places are very unpredictable um 
But you, uh, you, you talk about it as being kind of caught up in sentimentalism. Yeah. As a, and, uh, uh, I think there's a, there's a line I use somewhere in that essay in the middle of the book, and, it's, um, and I'm sure I stole it from somewhere, um, because I steal most things from somewhere. And it's um, whatever you're most afraid of showing up in your work, you can rest assured that it's close by. Um, and what I'm terrified always of is any kind of sentimental note coming into my stories or, or whatever. Um, and this was becoming a very sentimental novel. But I think you should kind of explore what mm. you're afraid of in your work. I think when you're a, a kind of an emerging writer or an apprentice writer and starting off, you look back over the stuff you've written and, we're, and you always come to these bits that are really embarrassing, you know, and really go, and you go oh, Jesus, I didn't, you know, and you immediately cut them out. Um, but increasingly, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to think you should cut everything else out and just leave the really embarrassing <laughs> bits down. Because that's very often when you're getting at the real stuff and getting close to the bone of things. And that's very often when you're writing about family stuff and about home and you're really closing in on, 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 on your, your fundamental things. Um, and you kind of have to build up a thick skin. I think, as a writer, mm. um, to write about that stuff. Um, City of Bohan, the previous novel, is on the surface of things a kind of, you know, you know, uh, set in the future, homicidal tips, hipster gangs <laughs> murdering each other and, and speaking a strange argo. But really, it's about growing up in Limerick and in Cork amidst incredibly wonderful and rich, mangled version of the English language we speak in these places, especially in the working class areas of them. Um, so it's a way of writing at home in a very <laughs> removed way, you mm. know? And again, this is, uh, Beetlebone is kind of a, a portrait of, of, of an artist, but it's also about me trying to uh, investigate the energies that feed into my work and why I, I need to make it. Mm. I, I thought it was quite interesting, you, you, know, you define the 1970s as now being historical fiction. Yeah. Do you, do, was, was there a particular, as well as obviously John Lennon as a character, but at that kind of period of, of the 70s where, you know, it's, you know, particularly when he goes to the island and he meets the screamers and mm. that point where the whole 60s revolution and counterculture is kind of going pretty pear-shaped. Yeah. It's really interesting, actually, the west of Ireland, which is very much my, my territory as a, as a writer, you know, all of it, the whole west coast <laughs> is mine. Um, <laughs> Often when you, when you read about the West of Ireland in Irish literature, it's about the farm, or it's about the small town, or it's about priests or something, you know? And that's fine, and there's lots of wonderful stuff, and I w that was true as well. But when I was growing up there in the 70s and 80s, it was also full of freaks, you know? There were primal scream communes, there were streaking communes, all sorts of crazy stif stuff was going on. Loads of freaks came in, and they really improved the place, you know? <laughs> Up until then, it had been this white Catholic monolith, you know, and they really improved it and brought it in. Um, so I wanted, uh, it was quite exciting actually then to discover that John Lennon had a very concrete role in that because he gave his island to a, a, a group of hippies called the Diggers. Um, and they were the first kind of organized commune in the west of Ireland. It was a, a polyamorous, uh, free love kind of setup. They lasted almost two years out in the rain in Clue Bay, God bless them. Um, <laughs> but it was really nice to think that's a whole kind of area of Irish life that hasn't really been discussed very much. It comes up a little bit in some great um, documentary films by a guy called Bob Quinn, who's um, been a great filmmaker in the West for the last 50 years, but it's hardly ever showed up in our, our books or stories, you know, so it felt like nice ground to be working with and just to, to investigate the kind of the history of Primal Scream in 70s Ireland was fun. Um, by the way, has, any, has anybody gone for Primal Scream therapy at any point? <laughs> I just want to point out we're in a safe place. <laughs> okay, I'm totally prepared to lead 
the screaming workshop today. That's the signing afterwards, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I tried to do some, of course, as part of my method acting research for the novel. I got a fish farmer to bring me out to his island, the Rhenish <laughs> Island. He left me off. I claim in the, the book that I stayed for three days. I stayed about three hours. Um, and I said, okay, I'm here. I said, I better do a bit of screaming and see how it goes, you know. So I roared my lungs out, absolutely roared and screamed. And I'm right as rain since. <laughs> uh, it, all, it, all, it all worked out beautifully. Everything, everything has been sorted. I'm now a calm, collected, steady person. But when you, when you talk about the 70s being historical fiction, you then said it, it's only, it's only going to be made up by gimcracked recreation. Yeah. So you kind of... It, it was really... It was, it was really undermining yourself as you go along. Yeah, it was really strange to kind of discover that as, as, as I was writing it. I was thinking, gosh, this is actually qualifying now as historical fiction, you know, because our kind of, our sense memories of it, our bodily memories of it are, are, are gone now. I'm sure lots of you haven't, weren't born in the 1970s, but it's, um, yeah, so you had to recreate it. And, and actually, I, I, I did look at some stuff concurrently from, from, from the time, some sort of documentary material as well, the west of Ireland in the 1970s and it looks god it looks incredibly distant now when you see it towns out there it looks like the 30s you know it looks very very long ago and looks like a distant planet um, and it was kind of a different atmosphere than now I think there was a real with people in the west of Ireland up until the 70s and the 80s a real sweet naturedness um, all the young fellas now out there are all savages um, <laughs> but it's I hope and I'm hoping they'll sweeten as they get older but it's, um, yeah, trying to get the textures of, of, of place in, in, into the fiction is, a, is what I'm up to a lot of the time, and it's very difficult. But that's what I'm, it keeps me off the streets. <laughs> and I was, uh, when I initially read Beetlebone, I was going, oh, uh, John Lennon, that's, uh, cause I, oh, that feels like a bit of a, a change. But actually, when you go and talk about it, and you talk about how he's part of the Teddy Boys yeah. and that whole relation, that kind of Edwardian and dandy and fashion and all yeah. that, and, and that, that kind of City of Bohan as well. Goes in City of Bohan, and also the character, some of the characters in um, Dark Lies the Island, they're, they're kind of either are men about town yeah. most of the time, yeah. uh, or want to be men, men's, men's about town. dapper motherfuckers yeah. showing up all over the work. Yeah, it's 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 strange actually. In some ways, the two novels are are quite similar in that they're also both concerned with characters who can't escape their past you know that's what brings them both together but I, I, I do like as a reader I, lo I love writers who are kind of unpredictable in, mm. and you're never sure what they're going to what kind of a book they're going to write next these kind of rogue careers you know like someone like say Dennis Johnson you know when all the books are very different from each other mm. you don't know what he's going to do next Hilary Mantel up until she started those <laughs> Cromwell books was really unpredictable mm. you didn't know what kind of stuff it was going to be and I kind of like those, those, those careers and I I hope I hope my work continues to be un, 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 unpredictable, predictably unpredictable. But these characters, uh, I think, are interesting because they're all, it's always about the lies that they're telling to themselves mm. quite a lot. Yeah, and and uh, it's funny the clothes thing. You know, I, I just love that sense of um, um, using costume to pre to present an affront to the world. And so it was really fun to write a kind of a gang opera for City of Bohan, <laughs> and also to talk about um, the history in this book of John's look where it goes, and it actually dates back to kind of Irish street gangs in Manchester and Liverpool in the 1890s, the original Edwardian dandies who wore kind mm. of, you know, train pipes and, 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 and crombie jackets and all of that. So, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's... Um, Was it important to place it in that kind of 
historical context. Oh yeah. You know, often yeah. everyone talks about the, the Beatles just appeared and exploded. Sure. And I, I, I'm, I'm really, really interested in what happens when Irish, um, Irish sentimentality and pathos and singing in pubs, when you transplant that to the bleak cities of the north of England, what do you get? And you get the Beatles, and you get the Smiths, and you get half of Joy Division. You know, that world <laughs> that I created was really... In and actually, a book that was really useful for me was the first part of Anthony Burgess's memoir, um, which was called Little Wilson and Big God. And it's about an Irish Catholic family in Manchester in the 20s. And it's a great picture of that world, you know? Um, and that was really unexpected source of kind of mm. um, feel or texture for this book as well because that was very much the kind of world of John's parents in kind of 20s Liverpool as mm. well you know and it was kind of that singing in pubs sentimental Irish off the boats kind of stuff that gave us you know all four Smiths all four Beatles <laughs> and all of that and Kate Bush interestingly <laughs> enough her mother was a step dancer from County Waterford so there you go <laughs> um, I'd like to open up to the audience for some questions. Uh, there should be a rover mic coming round, and oh, I can see you now. Uh, so do put your hands up, and I should point in the right direction. And there's a question at the front. Someone has broken the seal of the question time. It's always good. I, what I was going to ask was about what happened when you went to the island, but you mm. have just talked about it. You, yeah. So you only stayed for three hours. In the yeah. What, what actually, happened? the really interesting thing about it is it's an incredibly loud place it's cacophonous you know and it was really kind of comical that he bought this place as a kind of a meditative retreat and when you go out there it's the loudest place on earth it's louder than new york or tokyo because terns nest out there and they don't like humans showing up um so 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 they kind of dive bomb you and apparently the local lore is that the reason that he never really built a house out there as he had plans to do was Yoko was freaked out by the seagulls, essentially. <laughs> On the one occasion she visited mm. for an hour, it was like, no fucking way. We're not, we're, we're, we're not coming out here. Um, and it, it, is, it, is, it is strange. I, I thought that last bit I read about this giant egg, there are these giant surreal-looking eggs laid out all over the rocks, and they dive bomb you if you go anywhere within sight of them. And it looks like a kind of a Salvador Dali um, landscape. landscape. It is an, an intensely beautiful place. Um, it's for sale as well, again. Um, he bought it for 1,500 quid. It's now for sale for 220,000. But if we all chipped in, mm. and if we started a free love screaming <laughs> commune, we, we could be out there by tomorrow. <laughs> we could be there by tomorrow afternoon. But the yeah, Kevin Barry screaming it, centre. It's, it's actually the sound of the place is, is what stays with me. Just, just, just shrieking, crazy, kind of... Ah! Sorry, to follow on, just because when I read that part of the book where, where you talk about going there, it, it's almost like there was something happens there that you don't want to talk about. Yeah. That's the sense that I came away with. Well, I, I, I guess because I was only there three hours, not much happened. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, well, 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 how am I going to finish the book? <laughs> um, the shame of not lasting longer. But actually, the most fun I had with the book actually was when he goes back and tries to record the album and can't think of any words. That was actually the most fun part to write when I just put him again in a double act with this kind of um, lethargic sound engineer <laughs> stoner <laughs> character called Charlie um, but yeah it's it's I do li I do like to um, how do I say this interrogate my own process or method <laughs> as a writer I've, I've lots of friends who are visual artists and I'm always really struck by the way they're much more inclined to look at the way they work and change their methods and I think writers have a habit of getting getting set in their ways and falling into kind of ruts 
and do, doing each book like they did the last book because it worked the last time and it's kind of um I think the danger is you end up writing the same book or the same story over and over again. So I, I, I like to investigate things and tr go out there. So my big thing around the time I was writing Beetlebone was I'm going to write this on location, you know, <laughs> as, as, as much as I can. I'm going to be out around there and listening to it. And I took lots of little videos and stuff on my, on my iPhone. And it was, really, it was really fun to get that kind of direct plug into it in that kind of way, if that makes any sense. <laughs> that, but that, is, that really comes through in the book, though, that, that sense of... Yeah, that an, an artist must push themselves to some point of some almost like some kind of oblivion. Yeah, and and you know what? It, 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 people ask you, you know, how do you get a sense of place in in, in fiction? And I, it's an impossible um, question to answer. I, I I do think I often, weirdly, it's about it's about the talk. You know, if if you can get how they sound, how the people sound in a place, you can get a lot of, a lot else about it as well. You know, if you, if you can get their accents, you can get their, their souls in some kind of way. Um, I don't know, it's, it's weird describing a very beautiful place as well. Um, and, and, you know, Irish writers, you know, have this tendency towards kind of lyricism often because the place is astonishingly beautiful and it's natural to have that. But, you know, I, I do notice with myself, I'm always trying to kind of barb it and to step back from the kind of lyrical kind of oh, swoony <laughs> kind of bit with it. So I will try and kind of subvert it as it goes along. But it's all very complicated anyway, and it keeps me busy. <laughs> but, your, but your portrayal of the landscape is very much about its beauty, but also about its, it's feeling, its power. I guess, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of, yeah. And again, a whole sort of... Actually, the West of Ireland, and it's something that we don't talk about very much, but... I was asked, I was doing a reading in, in, in the US and someone asked me about the character of the West of Ireland. Could you, could you sum it up? And I said in a single word, rattled. Okay, <laughs> it's kind of a bit, a bit shook, as we say. Um, Windbothered. And I think it's because of Windbothered, <laughs> it's, but it's because of that huge, dark, throbbing ocean mm. that's on our doorstep and it's just this kind of presence there. And it leaves you a bit rattled feeling. You know, you, you know it's a mysterious thing to have just across the field at the end of the street. So it's, um, yeah, sea haunted is, a, is another way of describing some mm. of the stories I write, I think. <laughs> so, oh, gentleman there. Um, I just wanted to ask about sort of voice and consciousness um, when you're writing, what's going on inside John's head? Was that a case of trying to sort of translate the idiom of his speech yeah. into a direct monologue? Or do you think that thought on the page is something more than just right. a, a sonic one. I, I actually, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I kind of, I tried everything and I eventually just kind of threw the kitchen sink at it and I put in dialogues and monologues and third person and first person and second person and past tense, present, present tense, all sorts of tenses. And I had this weird kind of image in mind of what I wanted the, reader exper the reader's experience to be like. I kept picturing a deep fat fryer. Okay, <laughs> and the boiling cauldron of fat was the insides of John's brain. I was going to get the reader in a basket and just go vroom, down into it. You're uh, you're 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 in the midst of this, you know. And I, it kind of freed me up in a lovely way. I thought, oh, I can go mad with this, you know. I, I I wanted it to be a very like what I'm always looking for as a reader and as a writer is intensity, you know. I want it to be an intense experience on 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 the page. Um, but yeah, it was it was a case then of of, of kind of throwing the kitchen sink. It. I wrote the, most of the book in, eventually in the present tense, and it was kind of um, that was quite a late change um, in the last year, and it, and it just seemed to as a kind of I kind of set a little camera behind his eyes, you know, as he was out there in a van with this strange Cornelius character wafting around 
the west of Ireland. It, it just seemed to help a lot to give it that kind of immediacy. Um, and I, I guess it comes from just my own chronology and age as well. I've been very, very influenced by television and by films as much as by books. Did you feel you couldn't do that at the beginning in the sense that yeah. it, it was John Lennon? I, I, I wrote, I wrote I a first draft. His head. I wrote a first draft and I was looking back at it and I knew I felt uneasy about it because I was going, a lot of this is just too gorgeous altogether, you know? <laughs> some of those sentences about mountains in the west of Ireland were some of the best sentences ever about mountains in the west of Ireland. And I, I just thought they were dead on the page. You know, there was something wrong. It was all too pretty. Um, and it had to get kind of... I had to kind of go back in and kind of rough it up a bit mm. and kind of take the smoothness out of it, uh, which is actually a very often part of the editing process. You can, you can edit too much and you can polish too much and you can take all the awkward, elbowy, knuckly life out of a piece, you know, and you can sometimes... I saw Jeff Dyer talking about something very similar. You feel like you have to go back in at a late stage and kind of rough the thing up a bit again just to give it some vitality. Uh, there's a question over that side, if they still want the question. Or the guy, someone at the back. Hello, Kevin. Hi. 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 Thanks for that. It was great. Um, I'd just like to ask a pretty straightforward question, I think. Um, what's your favourite John Lennon song? <laughs> oh, God. We could be here for the night. Um, I love I'm So Tired on, on, on the White Album. Uh, it's kind of, um, it's, it's a sacred song to all insomniacs, I think. Um, and he, I, I, I was interested to discover, actually, that it was, it was one of his personal favourite recordings as well. He thought he sang it really beautifully, and he, d he does so. So if I, if I was put on the spot, like you're putting me on the spot, <laughs> it's that one. But there's so much, you know. I really like the early 70s kind of crazy solo work as well, the Plastic Ono Band and all those records, um, Isolation, songs like that. But, but I'm so tired if I had to pick one. <laughs> and is, is it him, more him as an artist rather than the... The Beatles, because you have that. Ref the have you, ha you have a little Beatles refrain yeah. coming back in the book. Uh, oddly like enough, I've never been a kind of. I've never been a Beatles obsessive like lots of people mm. are, you know. But I, but I, the White Album would be one of my favourite records. Um, and and yeah, it's it's weird since the book came out. At, at readings, you get a lot of kind of very Beatlesy people <laughs> who show up and start asking me about obscure B sides and things. I haven't got a clue, you know. Um, but I've been very happily that. It, they seem to buy into the book mm. as well. That that this uh, yeah, this sounds like it could be him, kind of a thing, you know. So you don't have anyone doing that kind of? How dare you? Not how yet. Dare you? Not yet. Give Sully him, his name. Give him time. But <laughs> not yet. No. Uh, oh, question in the middle, and then we'll come back to that. Thanks. Thanks for the reading. It was really, really good. Very, really enjoyed the book as well. Thank I'm you. just wondering, in the process of writing, do, do you ever wonder what might have become of him if he'd still been alive? Yeah, uh, yeah. you do. You can't help wondering, actually. And it's, um, you know, and I, I kind of tried to create an alternative scenario because actually his last record was the most mainstream, poppy, kind of quite saccharine thing he ever recorded, the double fantasy thing. And it was kind of fun in the book to imagine if he had gone in another direction, which is kind of an avant-garde, the way Scott Walker kind of went, you know, in that kind of direction. And it's weird, actually, because Yoko was in that direction. She was very much Lower East Side art scene, crazy stuff. So it was interesting to imagine him going in that line. He probably wouldn't have. I, I, I don't know. I, I just hope they wouldn't have done Live Aid or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been horrendous. <laughs> gone that dodgy Stones 80s uh, yeah. phase. The front yeah. <laughs> this, um, my question probably follows a bit from the previous one. Yeah. Did you do any research in New York? Um, and, well, was his life in New York at all relevant anyway to, yeah. to your book? I, I, um, I, I went to the 
Dakota building on that strange pilgrimage that people go on every day of the year and um and it's strange you know it's 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 the, the most remarkable thing i found out was that there's a, a cart just across the street selling lots of liverpool um, memorabilia so they had all these posters of stephen gerrard um, <laughs> for sale and i was just going this, this is odd um but yeah no i, I actually I, I i was kind of very careful to steer clear of doing too much research but it was nice actually that very late on in the last few weeks I was working on the book, I did come across a, a memoir by a photographer who was very close to him, who took a lot of the famous iconic New York shots with the Apple t-shirt and all that. Um, and in it he talked about how John did start going on strange little solo trips late in his life. He went to South Africa and he went to Tokyo and wore a disguise and for the <laughs> first time in his life checked himself into a hotel room. He had never booked a hotel room before, which is really poignant, you know, but it was... Um, what was really helpful all the way through the book actually was to try and imagine who he was um, just before that whole kind of unprecedented maelstrom of fame and attention fell on him. And he was just a, he was a 17 year old art college kid in Liverpool, a bit shouty, a bit messy, traumatised by a recent bereavement, um, very drunken, um, considered, considered himself always a devout Irishman. So that was another nice way into it. But it was, um, it was very helpful to try and imagine him at that period when he's 17 and then that classic old photograph of him as a teddy boy with the kind of grease back quiff you know that was kind of really useful always to get to keep that image in mind but also the the the, the scenes that you set in new york where he's he's just kind of he's completely isolated in this yeah yeah bubble of, as he was so, of domesticity apparently he would sometimes go out in disguise around the place you know um and he did actually go to the west of Ireland a couple of times to see his island, and there are lots of, of stories about him showing up in hotel bars late at night and stuff, and um, there's apparently a lost tape of him singing Irish rebel songs in a pub <laughs> at four in the morning. <laughs> if, if I track it down, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you all posted. <laughs> Some more questions. Another one right at the back. I'm just wondering if you've had any reaction from people who knew him, or friends or family, since you wrote the book. Sorry, have I had? Have you had any reaction or comments from friends or family or other people who actually knew? No, him? no word from Yoko. As, as, <laughs> as of yet, she's not here, is she? As, uh, as of yet, no. Um, so, so that means I kind of hopefully have got away with it. So you are very conscious, you know, when it's when it's a real person that you're that you're plonking down into one of your nutty stories. You know, it's it's you're taking liberties. Um, so. You have to ask yourself always, like you know, what what gives what gives you the right um, to actually do this, and um, I guess what gives you your right is your ability to do it in some ways, and the fact that you're prepared to spend four years in a shed in a swamp in County Sligo, going fucking nuts as you try to get it right, and that kind of earns you the right, I think, to have a go at it. But yeah, it's definitely something you're you're very conscious of for sure. Thanks. Hey, but you, you talked about. The fact that John's voice came alive when it was a double act. Mm. Did you not want to, did, did the temptation to create that double act of John and Yoko? Yeah, I was very careful not to refer to her too much in the book. Um, in an earlier draft, there was lots of funny comments he would make about Paul and stuff. But I wanted to keep <laughs> it as kind of, I wanted to keep, and I think he still refers to him as having, he sees a cow or something, goes, they're like Paul's eyes. Um, but I wanted to keep it kind of an alternative reality version, mm. really. And it's it's crazy. It's 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 the most. Um, it's a book that's really in the most um, unlikely genre of all, which is fan fiction. You know, it's imagining different <laughs> lives for your heroes. So it's um, 
Yeah, it was a surprise to me to find myself writing a, a, a fan fiction novel for four years. There you go. <laughs> Time for one more question, if anyone. Hi, thank you. I'm just wondering, you talked about some influences being TV and things. What about Irish writers? Because some of the things that you write remind me so much of Flan O'Brien, and I wonder yeah. if like, the funny, the, the humorous. Sure, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's, uh, people talk about uh, the, the tradition of Irish literature as if there's just one. You know, <laughs> and there's actually lots of disparate streams that go back through it. And I think in the late part, actually, of the 20th century, um, Irish writers struggled with these two huge influences of Joyce and Beckett. Um, and they were very contrary influences in that Joyce put everything onto the page and Beckett took everything back off the page again. But I always, I always loved that kind of third way, which is that kind of anarchic, satirical line that goes back through Flann O'Brien and it goes back to Lawrence Stern. And, I, and if I saw myself in any kind of Irish writing um, lineage, it would, be, it would be that one. Um, in more recent years, writers like, like Dermot Healy, I would have tuned into the kind of, kind of craziness at, at the heart of that work, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's strange. I was always a huge Flann O'Brien man as a, as, a, as, a, as a reader in my 20s and stuff. As I, as, as I get older, I, I, I really like, like to read some of the Beckett stuff a great deal now, especially his letters, actually, his books of letters. Um, they're very consoling because no matter how down or awful you're feeling, Sam is feeling much worse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he's, he, also, he also comes across, actually, for all his kind of posturing and kind of, and his melancholy is a real shtick, kind of, at some points. But he, he comes across as a very kind person as well and a really good friend. So it's, he, he, and he's incredibly learned. So the, the, I think the final part four of the collected Beckett Letters, an incredible project by Yale University Press, is just about to come out, and they're really incredible books. Mm. There was an event here last week on oh. that very book, available in the bookshop. Um, but do you... Uh, do you feel that kind of as a, as an Irish Irish writer, and you get asked the Irish question? Do you, do you kind of feel overcrowded by you know we sit in yeah. your shed? Well, you've got it, all it, these yeah, heads and it's, it, it is um, it is a small island geographically. You know, three hours to drive the width of it, and five hours to drive the length of it, and it's you know you throw a stick and you hit a poet <laughs> over the head. And it's been done to death, you think. Mm. As a younger writer, you definitely feel when you're starting off, God, this place has been done, you know? And often done very well, so you have to kind of invent your own bits. Like, mm. you have to set little mad cities, make them up and call them Bohan, or just go into primal scream therapy or something. You, but there's all, there, there, are always, there are always fresh approaches possible, I think. I'm afraid we have run out of time. Uh, Kevin will be signing his book in the bookshop just down there to the right. Uh, please do come and see him, ask any other questions, uh, recommend other favourite Lennon songs, and do buy his utterly fantastic book, Beetle Bone. So please thank Kevin Barry. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.